Even if you haven't been here the last few weeks to know where we are in the book of Philippians, you might have guessed that we're in Philippians chapter 2. Our sermon passage is verses 5 to 11 of Philippians 2, and we will get to that in, in a moment. But I want to read first, as our scripture reading this morning, Isaiah 53, which I think is a, a, a perfect counterpart to Philippians 2, 5 to 11. So Isaiah 53, that's our scripture reading. We'll go there first, and then we will turn our attention to our sermon passage Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. I probably should say this just by way of warning. Um, in, in the adult Sunday school class, we are uh, watching, we're doing a 12-week series uh, uh, with R.C. Sproul. It's a video series, and I will do my best not to affect uh, Sproul's mannerisms and way of speech, but I have to say, he, he's really catchy. It just sort of catches on. So if you find me doing that, um, just <laughs> smile. Um, don't get mad. I'll do my best, um, but he's it, just... He's just got that, that way about him. I'm not from you know, western Pennsylvania, so I, I don't know that I'll, if I did start doing it uh, unconsciously, of course, that I would really be able to pull it off. Okay, uh, now let us turn our attention to the Holy Word of God. Again, brothers and sisters, this is God speaking to you. Hear His voice. These are His words. Isaiah 53, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit, in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now turning to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. I'll begin reading at verse 1, however, and read through verse 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This ends the reading of God's most holy and glorious word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these portions of it that we have just heard read to us this morning. We thank you, dear Lord, that when your word is read, you speak. And we are grateful to you that you have given us ears to hear. We pray now for your blessing upon the preaching of your word. We pray for the one who preaches and those who hear. We pray, dear Lord, that your word would be used to transform our minds. And we ask, dear Lord, that you would be glorified now as your word is preached. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the reasons that it was helpful, I think, to read Isaiah 53 prior to reading Philippians 2, 5 to 11, was that Isaiah 53 provides in some sense the the content of what it means that Christ Jesus humbled himself, that he suffered, that he made himself nothing, that he abased himself. All of the things that you heard read and that you read along with in Isaiah 53, these were things that happened to Jesus Christ, that took place in his life. This is the form of his humiliation, what we read there in Isaiah 53. And so it helps us to fill in the blanks as we read Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Now, in last week's passage, Paul told the Philippians to do nothing out of selfish ambition. He said, don't do anything out of conceit. He said, but in humility, you are to count others more significant than yourselves. And we saw last week that the word for humility, it actually means humble-mindedness. Now, today's passage, Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, it has a hymn-like quality to it. And you have possibly heard uh, Carl Truman uh, make this statement about hymns. He says, if you want to know where the church stands, if you want to know what a church believes, you go to its hymns. You check out its hymnal. You may remember an incident a few years ago. There's a, a, a song by the Gettys. Of course, everybody knows the song. It's a beautiful song, In Christ Alone. And the PCUSA, five, six, seven years ago, they were working on a new version of a hymnal. They were coming out with it, I guess in some ways, somewhat like the OPC was. And like the OPC, uh, uh, working on their Psalter hymnal, the, the PCUSA was working on a new hymnal. They wanted to include in Christ alone. But they had an issue with one of the phrases in the hymn. Just one phrase. By his wrath, he satisfied They didn't like that. They wanted to change it. In God's love, 
something along those lines. They wanted to change it from wrath to love. And there's nothing in one sense wrong theologically with the idea of talking about God's love. He is loving. But in the context of, of what the original hymn said, in the context of the fact that that was found to be offensive in some way or other, talking about God's wrath and wanting to erase it from the hymn and change the line, it shows the theological direction that the church has frankly been in for quite some time. And the Gettys, to their credit, they refused to allow the hymn to be changed, and so it was not put into uh, the new hymnal of the PCUSA. You'd be happy to know that the OPC had no such objections over such lines, and it is in their new, uh, our new uh, Psalter hymnal. But today's passage, it has a hymn-like quality to it. It, it is very doctrinal and doxological. It, it has content to it, theological content. And it's also worshipful, which is what all doctrine ought to lead to. It has a hymn-like quality, and so many scholars believe that the passage contains a pre-Pauline hymn, which Paul then incorporated into his letter to the Philippians. And that may be the case, and, and brothers and sisters, don't let that alarm you. If Paul, if Paul took what was already out there and circulating among the churches, and he decided to put it into his letter, it doesn't turn Paul into some sort of nefarious redactor. What it means is that, God, that Paul appropriated that language that, that might have been circulating and said, this is perfect, this is doctrinally correct, I'm quoting it, like pastors sometimes will quote some of their favorite hymns in their sermons. That may be the case. It could also be that the hymn itself was one that was composed by Paul, which he then included in the letter. Either way, whether it's a, a pre-existing hymn or not, these verses contain truths that were and are to be held universally by Christians. And so in that sense, it, is, it shows in the way that hymns do today what the church believes or what it ought to believe. In our passage, it contains one of the most glorious, Christ-exalting passages in all of Scripture, but it does so by showing us the depths of His humiliation. It exalts the Lord by means of demonstrating to us how Christ humbled Himself. And Paul begins this passage with a commandment in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's commanding the Philippians to be unselfish in their mindset. Paul is saying that their attitude must be the same as Christ's, who was willing to suffer for the sake of others' eternal well-being. Remember what we saw last week, that humble, uh, humility, in humility, uh, see others as more significant than yourselves. That, that's humble-mindedness. We're to have the same mind as Christ. Now, it may be somewhat inconsistent for verse 5 to say, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And if you have other translations than the ESV, you might see that there are differences in translations because the, 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 the interpreters, the translators, have got to supply a verb there. And it's hard to know exactly what verb uh, is, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That is in the ESV, is, it's supplied, it's not present in the Greek. But we need a verb in English. We need something there. But if the ESV uh, translating committee was right, then what Paul is commanding the Philippians to have is something which he then will say they already possess. Have this mind which is yours. In Christ Jesus. If we have been made alive in Christ, we are already partakers in the mind of Christ. We are joined together with Him in a holy union. What's His is, is ours. 
And so Paul was able to say in 1 Corinthians 2.16 that as Christians, we have the mind of Christ. You already have this same mind. That's what Paul is commanding you to have in this passage. He's exhorting you to become what you already are. Now, what in the world does that mean? How do you become something which you already are? That's, that's often the case in the commands of Scripture. We're commanded to do something which we've already been told we, we have, we, we are. But it's somewhat like when you're a child. You were either, when you were a child, and some of you still are uh, children, you're either male or female. It, it's, it's binary. It's in your DNA. You can't change it cosmetically if you know what I'm getting at. You're either male or female when you're a child. But you haven't reached the fullness of that maleness and that femaleness when you're a child. You haven't become a man or a woman yet when you're a child. You haven't reached maturity. So you are male, you are female when you're a child, but, but you haven't reached the full potential of that maleness or that, that femaleness. So that's what Paul means by this. Become what you already are. He expects you to be humble and unselfish and to serve each other in love because you already have the mind of Christ. Now he's going to explicate what it means, uh, what he means by the mind of Christ in a few moments. When a Christian behaves in a selfish way, he is denying who he truly is. We might say, and no offense to our, our young folks in the church here, we might say, that he or she is behaving in a childish manner. Not childlike, which we commend, that's commended in Scripture, but childish, which is not good. And even children can be childish. And that's not exactly a good thing. Well, if you care about the state of your Christian health, then ask yourself this question Do I put the needs of my brothers and my sisters before my own needs? I think if we're being honest, and I'm putting myself in this category, we'd have to say no. Not always. That's probably being too generous. <laughs> Not often. It's probably getting closer to the mark. Not much at all. That may be quite true for each of us. How you answer that question will indicate your maturity level with regard to having the mind of Christ. Do I put the needs of others before my own? Now, Paul is writing to members of a church. He started 10 to 15 years earlier. These were the first converts of his on, Christian, uh, on European soil. Not Christian soil, but European soil. And as we've seen, we've already pointed to this, we're going to get to it later on when we get to chapter 4, but the church at Philippi is now experiencing some discord. It's probably experiencing some growing pains. In chapter 4, Paul urges the women, Euodia and Syntyche, who once labored with Paul to start the church to agree in the Lord. Paul, in other words, wants them to have the same mind. He wants them to have the mind of Christ. And he's already given them the crucial component for successfully working together as the body of Christ. They must have the same attitude of Christ toward one another that he had toward them. In other words, believers are to serve one another in humility. They are to put to death their own selfish desires in order to strengthen the entire body. We've got to put it to death or we're going to tear the body down. 
And what this means for our church is that each of you, each of us, must share in the responsibility that we have to build each other up, uh, each other up in the faith. To tear each other down. Not to destroy the faith. It means that each person here has a responsibility in, in, uh, to help in the spreading of the good news of Jesus Christ. So that God's elect will hear His voice. That they will be brought into the fold with the rest of God's people. How else are they to hear? Except that someone preaches the good news. And you can be involved in, in that spreading of the good news as you participate in the life of this church. But this kind of service in which so many of you are already engaged, it requires humility on all of our parts. And humility can only come in the life of a, of a person who has been made new in Christ. Only those whose minds have been transformed and renewed can have a truly humble disposition. That doesn't mean we always are, are consistently humble in our dispositions. We know that Christ is not merely an example for us as to how we're to live. But Christ is an example. He's our Savior, first and foremost, but He also sets for us the path upon which we are to tread. He is an example to Christians. And this is what Paul is expressing in these verses. Verses 6 to 8, they deal with what has come to be known as Christ's humiliation. And this specifically deals with Jesus' conception, His birth, His life, and His death. His humiliation. Now, humiliation, it shouldn't be understood in the way that we normally understand the term. Humiliation is often confused with embarrassment. When a 15-year-old trips in the cafeteria and spills her food everywhere, that's embarrassment. It might be humiliating in a sense, but in comparison to what Christ experienced in His humiliation, it's, it's really just embarrassment. They'll get over it in time. What Christ did in giving up His place in heaven and coming to earth and taking on the form of a slave, that is humiliation. His attitude was one of a complete abasement. Imagine this. He is the King of heaven. He is, he is, he is God Himself on high. The Son of God is God, just as the Father is God, just as the Spirit is God. And yet the Son of God, He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be clung to. He let go of it in order to become man. In these verses, Paul describes, verses 6 to 8, Paul describes Christ's humility. And this description hinges on his use of the word form in relation to his divine and his human nature. Verse 6 says, Who, though, it, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word form here does not mean that he simply looks like God. He had the, the shape or the appearance of God. It goes much deeper than what is on the surface. Hebrews 1 verse 3 sheds light on the, the idea of divine form with regard to Christ. We read there, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That's what Paul means by the word form. That's what the Bible means when it speaks of this, uh, this, uh, the form of God. The radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. The Son of God is the same in form as, the, as God the Father. He is the exact imprint of His nature. As, as Hebrews 1.3 also alludes, the form of God, that which unmistakably identifies Him as God, is His glory. 
And Paul says that this form of God, this equality with him in glory, it was not something that he clung to. Jesus was not like a dictator fighting to keep himself in power. Those who belong in authority don't have to cling to their position. We see despots, we see tyrants, we see dictators around the world clinging to their positions of power and they do anything that they can to remain there. Christ Jesus doesn't have to. It rightfully belongs to him. He's not going anywhere except voluntarily. Instead, as verse 7 says, Christ made himself nothing. He readily and willingly gave up his position of power. The word there is one that has been used to, to, to develop a, a, an idea of, of kenosis doctrine of, of Christianity. That phrase has been hotly debated. And so, so in the ESV, older translations use the word, he made himself nothing. The newer translation of the ESV uses the word, he, he emptied himself. You can find this in other English translations as well. He emptied himself. It, it can be translated that, that way. That's a, that's a legitimate way of translating the word, but we have to be very careful because in the late 19th century and early 20th century, liberal theologians took this idea of, of, of kenosis, of emptying, and they, and they ran with it, and they ran in a very dangerous direction, saying that, that, that the Son of God, when he emptied himself, when he when he went through this process of kenosis, whatever that might be, that he gave up his divinity altogether. That, that, that Christ on earth was merely man and nothing more. Brothers and sisters, that's heresy. Don't believe that. That's wrong. Don't, don't go there. Christ, he gave up his glory. He gave up his position in heaven. He did not give up his divinity. Everything else in this passage shows that Christ here on earth is fully divine. Everything else in the passage in Philippians chapter 2, it goes against this notion of the, of the kenosis theory or kenosis doctrine that he gave up his divinity. All of the Gospels point against this as well. If we say that Christ emptied himself of his divinity, we are saying that he was nothing more than a regular human being. And that poses a distinct problem for sinful human beings like you and me. To empty himself of his divinity would be to lose his essential nature. God would stop being God. That is impossible. That cannot, cannot happen. And what's more of, of sort of direct importance to us, although that's extremely important, if Jesus Christ ceased being God, then he cannot save sinners. If he was not the God-man who hung on the cross and died in our place that he would not have been resurrected from the dead. He would simply have been a mere man on that cross who could not die in the place of sinners or be victorious over sin itself and death itself. Jesus Christ was and is God. There has never been, there will never be a time when he is not God. And what this verse means, then, is that Christ made himself nothing by the very act of putting on a human nature. It's subtraction by addition, if that makes any sense. He made himself nothing by adding to himself a human nature. His divine nature didn't go away. His glory is merely cloaked in humanity. 
His divine glory was obscured by being human, but his divinity was still there. He gave up his position of authority, but not his divinity. That is part of his essence. It cannot be given up. In emptying himself, Paul means that in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. That's Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. And Paul is not going to contradict himself by saying in Philippians he, he gave up his divinity and in, in Colossians that all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. His glory was cloaked by his humanity. That's what he means. The very next phrase in verse 7, it tells us that Jesus took the form of a servant, literally a slave. Again, as form in the previous verse meant the same in substance, equal in power and glory, form here means he literally, he became a slave. He, he lived an impoverished life. He was not born in the halls of a palace. He was born in the lowliest of places. I'd forgotten what manure smelled like. I grew up on a dairy farm. When you grow up on a dairy farm, you smell manure all the time, and you get so used to it that you can't really smell it much unless it you know, is agitated and stirred about and spread around on the fields. But this past week, I was up in Pennsylvania, in, in the Dutch, uh, Pennsylvania Dutch land, in other words, the Amish country. And man... Last year I was there, we're close to, it was fairly close to Hershey, or two years ago rather. And the second day that I was there, the morning I woke up, I was going to breakfast, and you could, smell, you could smell the chocolate from the Hershey Chocolate Factory. This year, the whole time, every time we stepped out, I don't know if it was the, 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 the winds, I don't know if it was the humidity, I'm not sure what it was, every time we stepped outside, it was the smell of manure. It was inescapable. And it wasn't pleasant. <laughs> It wasn't like I remembered it as a child. Jesus Christ was born in a stable. He was born in a place that housed animals like sheep and goats and cattle. He was born in one of the most stenchful places you can imagine. We all understand what it means to have an assault on, on the sense of smell. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And that's where Jesus was born. He was born as a, as a servant. He was born as a slave. The last part of verse 7, being born in the likeness of men, it deals with that specific point some 2,000 years ago when Mary gave birth to Jesus Christ. Born in the likeness of men. But born far worse in a far worse condition, in a far worse estate, I would hazard to guess than any one of us here. We might have grown up poor, but we did not grow up Jesus Christ poor. We weren't born into that level of, of abasement, lowliness, humiliation. The eternal Son of God, he had added to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, as our confession puts it. And so was God in human flesh. God becoming man epitomizes humility. Man is not some sort of lesser degree of, of God. 
Man doesn't fit on some sort of continuum. There is no continuum when it comes to God. There is no one who is his equal. There is nothing that is his equal. Being, being created in the image of God, it, it doesn't mean that, we are, that we're little mini-gods. The creator became a creature. However, Paul says that he humbled himself by doing something more than becoming a man. Paul says that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of of death. The eternal and infinite God who has no beginning and is without end took up human flesh, a human nature, and so made himself susceptible to death. He died. That was his obedience. The Son of God knew before he left his Father's side in heaven that he would be going to his death. In John's Gospel, halfway through, Jesus he sets his face like stone to Jerusalem. And, and the second half of John it is the Passion Week. The impending death of Jesus Christ, it, it covers the entire the entire gospel. It's the purpose for which he came. It was to die. The everlasting Son of God obeyed his Father's will, and as we read in Isaiah 53, it was the Father's will to crush him because of our sins. It was the Father's will to crush his only begotten beloved Son. He was obedient. Because it was necessary that he should suffer these things. As Jesus himself said in Luke 24, 26. It was necessary that Christ should suffer and die because God chose to save a people from sin and death. He chose us. He didn't want us to die. He didn't want us to experience his wrath forever. It was necessary because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but instead would have eternal life. And God, in His great love and His compassion for His people, He chose to save them from their sin and His wrath. And so, He came to die. That's a part of His humiliation. But the eternal Son of God suffered even deeper humiliation than simply dying. As if it weren't bad enough. As if it weren't awful enough. Jesus was obedient to death of the most accursed kind for the Jew. Death by hanging on a tree. If you were to die by hanging on a tree, the Old Testament says you are accursed. You're an abomination to the Lord. The only people who die by hanging on a tree, they they are an abomination before they die. But... It was by this humiliating death on the cross that Jesus' Father, His plan to save sinners, was accomplished. Jesus did this so that sinners like you and me would be able to spend the rest of eternity with Him. There was no other way. There was no other way than for Him to die this accursed death. Christ's humiliation, His putting on flesh, His dying on the cross, it has freed us from enslavement to our selfish sin and the wrath that it deserves. It has set us free to serve each other in humility. Brothers and sisters, 
have this same mind. If Jesus Christ was willing to become dust, then so must we be. Because that's what we are. From the dust we were made to the dust we will return. We've got no business thinking ourselves more highly than we ought. Jesus was born into poverty. He lived a life of sorrow. He was rejected by his followers, by his own people. And he was put to death by those very same people who should have known who he was. That he was the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, promised in passages such as Isaiah 53. It wasn't enough just to simply execute him, to put him out of his misery, just to stone him. They had to execute him on the accursed cross. And for a period of three days, even worse, he was under the power of death. And he did this all for the purpose of sinners like you and me, so that we could be reconciled to him, to God. This is what it looks like to have the mind of Christ, to put others before yourself. We are no better than Christ. We are not Christ's equal. We have no business thinking of ourselves as being better than Christ. Now, in verse 9, there's a distinct change that takes place. You've noticed this more than likely. Verses 6 to 8, it taught us about Jesus' descent uh, into humiliation. Verses 9 to 10 teach us about his ascent uh, to the highest of heavens. These verses deal with Christ's resurrection and his ascension, his exaltation. This is his elevation by his Father to a position above all others. Paul tells us that God highly exalts Jesus. This is Jesus' prayer in John 17, 5. You probably remember this. Near the end of Jesus' life, he was, he was praying to his Father. And he asked his Father to restore, restore to him the glory that he had before the world existed. And Paul is reporting here in Philippians 2 that God the Father has, he has given this request. He's answered Christ's prayer. He's fulfilled it. In restoring his glory, it means that Jesus was raised up to the highest position over heaven and over earth as his reward for his perfect obedience. And in addition, his father also gave him the name that was above all names, which scholars agree is Yahweh. Verse 11 says this, Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord is the word used in the Greek version of the Old Testament in place of Yahweh. In fact, most of our English Bibles use Lord in all capital letters for Yahweh. For a Jew like Paul, there was no higher name for God than Yahweh. This name was a gift given out of the Father's love for His Son. It showed His highest approval for all that Jesus had accomplished. Now, here's the challenge, and you're probably wondering, Jesus is God. Didn't He already possess the name Yahweh, if he's equal in power and glory, if, he, if he's a partaker in the divine nature, doesn't this already belong to him, this name? And that's true. The Son of God, he rightly goes by the name Yahweh. But never before in the history of all creation was there a time until after Christ's resurrection that the name Yahweh was, was used to designate man. I have to be careful. It's dangerous when we start thinking about dividing the, the divine nature from the human nature or separating those things. 
But Jesus Christ is God-man. Let me put it this way. The Son of God, yes, he, the name Yahweh applies to Him, but never before has it been applied to the Son of Man. And this is, this is why this is significant. The God-man who sits at the right hand, Jesus Christ, who is at the, Father, at the Father's right hand, our representative, our federal head, the one who makes intercession for us, he has been bestowed upon him, he's had bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. And because he has been given this highest of all names, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Now what does this mean? At the name of Jesus, it's when Jesus returns. Few, if any, bowed before Jesus when they heard his name the first time around. Maybe, maybe some did occasionally. When Thomas, after Jesus' resurrection, uh, when he encountered Jesus after he'd been doubting, doubting that Jesus had been resurrected, he, he, Jesus presents himself to him and he, and he says that my Lord and my God. A few bowed before Jesus the first time around. Every knee will bow the second time. Every tongue will confess that He is Yahweh, that He is Lord. Because He has been given this highest of all names at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. That's in the future. That's when Christ returns. But we love to speak of the already as well as the not yet. So that's the not yet. Jesus is going to come back and every single human being on the face of the earth all of those who have died in Christ and those who, who died outside of Christ, they will be resurrected. Their bodies will be resurrected. Their souls will be reunited. Uh, the believers on one hand, the, the, the unbelievers on the other. But every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every knee, even Satan's, will bow as he acknowledges that Christ Jesus is victorious over even Him. The prideful angel of light. So that's the not yet. That's, that's in the future. At some point. Maybe next week. Who knows? But there's an already to it. There's, there's an already bowing of the knee. It's taking place right now. It's taking place here in this church. It's taking place in churches all around the world where... True believers gather in the name of Jesus Christ to worship the triune God. That is a bowing of the knee to Christ Jesus. So coming here to worship God this morning is a present fulfillment of what Paul is describing as happening off in the future. But it's also fulfilled whenever a, sir, a sinner puts his faith in Christ and repents of his sin. How many of you, when you first were brought to faith in Jesus Christ, when you first were made regenerate, you fell on your face in sorrow for your sins. Literally. were down on your knees. You are on the floor crying tears of sorrow and joy. That is an already an acknowledgement of who Jesus Christ is. For us in the future, it will come as no surprise. We already know that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. As we've said, there will be a future fulfillment at the final judgment, the, the great white throne of, uh, of judgment. Every knee in heaven and on earth, under the earth, they will bow. 
before the Lord. God's people will bow in celebration of Jesus' victory over sin and death, over Satan, over all of those powers and forces that have been arrayed against the Lord. God's enemies will bow in defeat. They will acknowledge their, their Lord and Master. But that is not to say that that is some kind of saving faith that causes them to bow. The enemies of God will bow because they will be forced to bow. Just like ancient enemies were forced to bow before their conqueror. In the same way, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The, The name Yahweh will be on the lips of every person, friend or foe. Those who loved him and those who hated him with all that they had. They will acknowledge who he is. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And God so loved his son that he has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name above all names. And it is out of this great love for his son and for his people that God allows you to share in Christ's exaltation. Again, that does not mean, like the Mormons teach, that you are some mini-God or you will be some God in the future. That's not what it teaches. But God, in his generosity, has allowed you to share in Christ's exaltation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 says this, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You too are made partakers in the exaltation and the glory of Jesus Christ. One day you will reign with him in glory. But in the meantime, you are called to be like Jesus, serving one another in humility God is not a proud and arrogant and conceited God. That is for Satan and his followers. We are not to be proud or arrogant or conceited. Well, Paul has told us about the eternal Son of God's willingness to give up his exalted position in heaven in order to humbly serve those who were once his enemies. Christ died for sinners like you and me. For Paul, Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, they weren't only historical facts. They have the power to change people's lives. Everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ has been set free from their enslavement to sin. You have been raised with Jesus Christ. You have been exalted with him. Don't act like some earthbound sinner. You are in Christ Jesus. It's time for you to believe it. To live like it. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are no longer a slave to your selfishness. You have been made free. But what that means is that you're a slave to a different master. You're no longer a slave to yourself. You're no longer a slave to your sinful desires. You're no longer a slave to Satan. But you are a slave to Jesus Christ. You're certainly no better than he was. You are free, but you're free to serve your neighbor without selfish motives. You're free to put others before yourself. You can labor in the church as you seek to build the kingdom of God without feeling like you're trying to earn God's favor. When in the back of your mind, you know know that there's nothing that you can do that's good enough. You no longer have to worry about that. You're free. 
Christ has set you free. His mind has become your mind. So I end it the way we began. I end it with the title of the sermon. Have this mind. Brothers and sisters, you've already got it. And that's good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you. We thank you for the humiliation, but also for the exaltation of Jesus Christ. By his humiliation, he, he became one of us, but through his exaltation, he proved who he truly is. We thank you, Lord, that he did not give up his divinity in becoming human. We thank you, dear Lord, that he did, did not give up his humanity when he was exalted and came to sit at your right hand. We thank you that he ever lives above for me, for us to intercede. We pray, dear Lord, that just as he lived his life for us while he was here on earth, while we are here on earth, we pray that we would live our lives for him. Meaning that we would live our lives for other people. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to humble ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name.